1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 79 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own, and not that my present or past employers, I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals in the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I apologize for my voice this week, folks. I'm really sick, uh, but, you know, we're still banging out the shows. This is number 79. We did 79 shows in a row, and we're just going to keep banging out uh, out for you. So, um you know, I, like, I apologize if you could bear with me. Hopefully it's not too annoying. But uh, I hope to feel better next week. We had a great show last week uh, with the chief security officer, security mentor, Dan Lorman, on some of the predictions he writes about in this, in this government magazine called Government Technology. And uh, I think it's the name is Government Technology Magazine. Uh, but, you know, Dan was great. I mean, he talked about the top 10 security predictions for 2019 and you know what these predictions have already come true in some cases, even though we're only one quarter into the year, and then what we should expect to happen in the cybersecurity space moving forward into the future, which prediction is a huge piece in this market. I mean, you can't really go too far ahead. I mean, things change every day. So not we're seeing. Things are changing by the hour in the cybersecurity market, right? Being agile and flexible is a big deal. So Dan also talks about what disagreements experts have and uh, some of the experts and vendors are disagree or some of the uh, things that we say uh, are going to happen in the future regarding the direction of cybersecurity, which was always interesting, right? It's, it's interesting when people disagree because when they don't have the same opinions. It becomes thought-provoking, and it's a good discussion point. And it actually, I think, brings out a lot of other ideas from a lot of different people. So he also talked about what is top of mind for most public sector CIOs for 2019, And he reviewed the top 10 priority list for the National Association of State CIOs, uh, which he is very familiar with because of his experience. So, And then the final segment, which was great, which I think a lot of people listen to, is Dave gave us his thoughts on the cybersecurity talent shortage, what he thinks the hardest jobs are to fill, and how job seekers can attain a position in cybersecurity. That's a big one, right? So people love to listen to that kind of stuff. I think a lot of people have different opinions, um, all of which I think can be very helpful, especially for younger folks. And the episode was packed with all kinds of good information. So look, I I promise you, you will walk away smarter than you were before you listen to it when you turn it on, right? The Chief Security Officer of Security Mentor, Mr. Dan Lorman, talking about what predictions have already come true in 2019 on last week's episode. That's episode number 78 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. So just go to our new TF7 Radio site at tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes right at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list, of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And, of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio. And you can even write comments on the different news articles and topics that we're talking about on the show, which makes it a lot of fun. So since we're on 11 different playback mediums now, and, and people usually have preferences on which ones they like, right? No one, you know, a lot of, Everyone uses something different. We made it easy for you to find all the playback mediums that Task Force 7 is on. You hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and it'll take you right there. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website, which is really the best way to stay connected to the TF7 network and family, right? So this way, you will get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. And as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras, encore episodes, yeah, you might have you know missed some of them, and some of them are really good, uh, and that's why we keep putting them back up and then we put them right at the front of your your library. And other Task Force 7 news and events. So you get all the information on the upcoming TF7 network as well. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com, to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it. Would you subscribe? So we have yet another great show for you this evening. We're going to put together our first TF7 Cybersecurity Expert panel. And, you know, uh, Tom Pager is going to be on with us, uh, you know, again, and, and, and Andy Benillo, our co both, both our co-hosts. And I think, you know, Tom's traveling out of uh, uh, San Francisco, so I think he's in Chicago today, so he's, he's, he's kind enough to take the time to, to be with us. So originally I was going to do an expert panel for every third segment of each show. And I still might do that. I right? still might do that. Right? So I'm thinking about maybe having an intelligence brief and like sort of a, a little bit of a, a, a dialogue on the, on the first segment and then a guest on the second segment with specific topics and then maybe doing a panel on the third segment. So I think that might be pretty cool. I mean, so the you know, first segment, breaking down the news, the second segment would be the guest, and the third segment would be the guest panel. So I'm trying to put that together. Um, it's a very time-consuming uh, uh, thing to do, but I really think you know, people would like that. They would enjoy it. But for today, we're going to have the entire, the entire panel for the entire show. So let's get to it. From Silicon Valley in San Francisco, the Chief Security Officer of Bitco, Thomas Pageler. From the Beltway in Washington, D.C., the Chief Information Security Officer of Siena, Andrew Banillo. And from Sydney, Australia, the Chief Information Security Officer of the National Australian Bank, Mr. David Fairman. So, Tom and Andy, welcome back. You guys are co-hosts of the show on all the time. I think everybody knows who you guys are. And, Dave, this is your first time on the show, so we're super stoked to have you on with us. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, sure. It's great to be here. Um, good, to, good to be on the show. I'm looking forward to a good session. Yeah, thanks for being here, man. I really appreciate it. I I know that uh, you heard me saying that we had a big show a couple of weeks ago with former Navy CEO Marcus Capone, where we talked about convergent security models. And it was a really good show. We had a record um, uh, month last month in terms of how many listeners tuned in without actually uh, having a TF7 Extra on. It was amazing. Um, So record number of people listening to the show, which I really appreciate. But does does NEB have a convergence security model in place today? How's that work?
2: Yeah, yeah, we do. So um, actually I was the first chief security officer to come into National Australia Bank. Um, so my role got created last year. Uh, I was uh, lucky enough to be uh, selected for the role. So that's what brought me home from New York back to Australia in about June last year. So we brought together, my role's quite broad. Uh, I've got uh, cybersecurity, information access uh, sorry, identity access management, fraud, physical security, employee surveillance is in there, sort of uh, all our investigations, bribery corruption, misconduct, uh, pretty much everything you can think of end-to-end, executive protection, end-to-end that you can think of from a security perspective, uh, falls underneath my remit. So we're the first bank in Australia to do that. Um, we're you know we're we're working through what that that program looks like. Clearly, with my previous experience, I bring that from the, the UK and the US, where we saw a lot of the financial institutions move down that path over um, yeah, over a few, uh over the many, uh, many past few years. And if I think particularly back in my UK days, back in two thousand five through two thousand and ten, um, you know that was a fairly common model. So at least I've been able to bring that to, uh, bring that to the table. But I'm a big believer in the convergent security model. I think we've seen that trend in the industry now for, for several
1: years. Uh, so that's really interesting. I didn't know that you were the first bank to actually implement uh, that convergence security model. So how, how's that working for you? What kind of advantages do you see, uh, you know, in having that model in place? I mean, what's going on at your bank? Yeah. In terms of The benefit, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, look, look. I think, uh, that, that, you know, the benefit really comes back to one, a couple of things. So I think about a fusion center. So when I think about you know, Some of the more advanced um, institutions that have gone down this path, it's really about bringing that data, all those, what has been typically siloed data sets, bringing them together underneath the one roof into a big data environment, and allowing them to identify patterns in that data that they probably wouldn't have seen if it had been looked at uh, in isolation. I think there's that one piece it gives you a lot more, allows you to be a lot more intelligence led, particularly once you start looking or your internal. Data. So whether it's your uh, financial transaction data, whether it's your investigations, case management, or your cyber data, you know, the entire click stream from the, the mouse click through to the, um, all the way through the financial transaction for the customer. Uh, you know, you can see everything in, into that space. You've got all your external threat data. I think bringing all that stuff together and starting to identify those patterns and then more to the point identifying anomalies outside of that which could be uh, potential areas of threat. I think that's that's one really core um, sort of key cornerstone element to the program. The second thing for us, I think, is um, really bringing the teams together and the situational awareness that you get of having the teams integrated and working more collaboratively than ever before. The teams sitting together, hearing uh, other teams, talking about specific instances, being involved in, in incidents side by side, I think, you know, they're starting to see, it just, uh, it generates conversation, it generates thought, and it triggers um, conversations that probably wouldn't have been seen before, which I think allows us to, to be a little bit quicker to joining some of the dots and responding to some of the issues.
1: How are, they, uh, how are the physical security teams and, and the executive protection teams integrating with the cyber teams? Is that... Uh, is that
2: so, yeah, great. <laughs> you, you, yeah, really good question, That So, um, you know, a couple of things there. Clearly, they both we have uh, operations centres, so security operations centres uh, for physical security, for should there be a physical security incident. Uh, but also, we have a security operations centre and incident response process for our cyber uh, capability. So, we're starting to bring that together. They're still physically separate softs at this point, but we are um, working down the path of co location for them. Uh, by the by the end of the uh, end of this year, also just aligning on incident management processes and sort of disciplines. So what we're starting to see is, you know, some uh, particularly in the cyber security space, we're probably a little bit more disciplined around uh, the way that we manage incidents. So taking some of those disciplines and practices and, and bolstering the overall capability from a physical security perspective. When it comes to executive management, uh, executive, um, yeah, executive protection. I think uh, you know, the, the benefit we're seeing is really the convergence of the cybersecurity elements into executive protection, no longer is executive protection just about uh, security monitoring, setting up alarms and making sure that is the perimeter for, uh, for an executive. It's also around looking at the digital risk profile of that executive, looking for so the le- leveraging cybersecurity technologies that allow us to go out there and, and scan the environment, looking for, false uh, or fraudulent LinkedIn profiles, et cetera, which are clearly used for you know, business email compromise or social engineering to, of, of um, adversaries or threat actors purporting to be executives. So we're bringing that together and bringing that um, as one of the, as a, as a combined uh, approach for our executive protection process. So bringing the physical security guys, getting them more aware of the cybersecurity threats that, that it impacts the, the executives in which we protect.
1: So this is really interesting. You know, I, I think, um, you know, when we worked over at JPMorgan Chase together, we had an intelligence team that was a, actually combined with a bunch of different domains. Yeah. We had fraud intelligence, we had cyber, we had executive yeah. protection, right, political uh, intelligence, regulatory intelligence, and a bunch of other things. Do, is your intelligence team uh, structured like that today?
2: Yeah, the, the team isn't all together underneath in one function. It's a, it's a fragmented intelligence team, but I have one head of, uh, like a, a global head of intelligence who runs that, what I would call that discipline or that function. But the intelligence teams are embedded in the team. So the cyber intel teams are still part of the uh, intel, are still part of the cyber team. The fraud intel team is still part of the fraud team. We have one centralized person who owns the overall strategy and direction of how we're starting to pull that together. Now, whether or not we start to converge those things over time is another question, but uh, for the first time, what we have is one consolidated, uh, holistic end-to-end view on how we think about intelligence. And actually, that, that individual who runs that for me is based in New York and comes from a similar background to to, to you and, and myself in terms of the experience of the organizations they've worked for, but also has worked for some of the organizations that you expect to get great threat intel people out of, you know, uh,
1: the you know, Secret Service or um, FBI type background. Nice, nice. So what, do you, what are some of the problems that you're running into, some of the obstacles or challenges and maybe some of the disadvantages of having this model? I'm sure it's just not all a big birthday <laughs> part, right?
2: <laughs> no, it's not on, mate, spot on. Look, I think it, it's like everything. One, it's change for the organization. So managing change and managing people through that change. And I would say too, you know, particularly you know as we're moving down that digital transformation, as much so as, as like any other large organisation, particularly you know, any large bank. I think those who are not quite uh, as technically savvy as others uh, are sort of starting to. I guess that they're trying to figure out their place in the market. They're trying to figure out their place in the system and, and how they come together. So I mean, a part of that is. How do we train and cross skill? I've always said that as part of the integrated security model. To me, fraud experts will become cyber experts, cyber experts, fraud experts, physical security experts, and cyber experts. But really, I think one of the biggest uh, challenges is the cross pollination of the skill sets and how we're truly trying to make that effective. I think there's that piece. One is, and the other piece is, like I say, managing change. It's a big change for Australian banking for us to head down this path. Uh, always been very siloed before. Uh, It's great that we're the first to be on the path heading down this. I think it's just getting people comfortable and and getting some of the teams to to realise the benefits and and take them out of their comfort zone a little bit more. They're they're probably some of the biggest challenges. And probably the the last thing I'll mention is bringing all that data together. So, you know, how do we lean that into a big data lake? How do we um, normalise that data and start uh, you know, creating the capability for us to identify those patterns and right, create those models that I was talking about previously. Leading that data and managing that data is, is, a, is a challenge in itself. So they'd be the, the challenges.
1: Sure, sure. So I mean, I'm sure other financial institutions are taking note of what you're doing down in Australia. Do you think they're going to follow suit? Yeah, I do
2: actually. I do. I don't think it's, it's uh, I think it was great that uh, National Australia Bank were the first to, to be on this path, but. I know that there's discussion with the other banks uh, and they're yeah, looking at heading down this path. Because I think we, we've seen this across the industry now for many years, as I mentioned before. So I, I don't think it's only because they've had, had gone down this path. I think that's been a trend that we've been seeing. But I think you now that one bank's taking the plunge, the others will be certified.
1: Nice. Andy, you know, what, what's the biggest thing that you took away from the show with Marcus? And, and finally... Do you think we're going to get some momentum with these convergent security models? Like it seems like Dave's getting them down in Australia. I mean, do you think it's going to be the standard instead of the exception soon, or how do you think it's going to play out?
3: I'd like to think so, George. You know, I think it's great. I mean, kudos to you, Dave, for for putting it together. I mean, I think you know those being able to make the business case. I think companies, if they can see the benefit of you know not having to have multiple organizations and manage multiple organizations, I think mean, there's extreme benefit. You know the takeaway with with Marcus, right, is being able to take, um, you know, leaders, right? Like he, he said, right. He, he had leaders that would come down to the to the, the the working level, right, and understand, you know, the challenges they go through. I thought that was a, a great thing, and I think that would really help. You know, when we start to talk about converged models, is you know, executives, you know, like ourselves, right, having to make sure we take continue to take the time to to understand what what people need. And I think once we understand what data they need, people will start to go more into the converged model.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, Tom, you know, I see many organizations struggling between the CSO and the CISO over who might take control of a convergent model. Because in most organizations, there are two models that exist now. So, unfortunately, I see all these companies, this as a cost-cutting uh, exercise. Well, you know, they say, well, we only need one of these executives. We just need one without the, I don't really think it's one or the other. I think it's, conver- you know, a combination of both organizations being converged into one. And, and unfortunately, uh, outside of seeing this as that cost-cutting uh, measure opportunity, they need to, you know, to choose between one level of, uh, executive and the other. They think, I think it's actually possible for them to do it with both, maybe have a, 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 a CISO or, you know, like a, a chief security officer and then a deputy chief security officer or something like that. Is it possible for someone without cybersecurity experience to take control of a convergent model?
4: Yeah, I think absolutely. I actually agree with some of the stuff Dave was saying in that I think the the leadership, the management is more important sometimes than the fundamental understanding of the different areas because it's really hard to find someone who can understand how everything should um, operate together, how to empower the necessary individuals, and to make sure that the data sharing, sharing's happening. And so, somebody might be a really technical person, but they just can't really do that management spot, part. Or someone's really good in you know physical security, but they can't really do the management part. So, I think it's just finding that person who is really uh, good at managing. And then, you know, to your point on the convergent model, uh, I fortunately have run convergent teams in the last. Know, three companies I've been at, and I think that they're very beneficial. I think it, uh, it's great. Um, and as you know, at some of them, I've had either uh, CSO, report, so I've been a CISO, a CSO, a CRO, a CCO, so Chief Compliance Officer, Chief Risk Officer, CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, Chief Security Officer. I don't think the title really matters. It's a matter of who owns what, and you just clearly know who owns what. So in some instances, I had CISOs reporting to me, sometimes CCOs reporting to me, sometimes I've been the CRO with the CSO reporting to me. Right now, I'm currently the CSO and CCO. Um, I don't have any other Cs reporting to me. We just don't have a lot. But at some point as we grow, uh, I could see CISOs and others coming under me, um, which are necessary to make sure that we we fill the right holes. And I think it's just that management skill, knowing um, who to put where and knowing what you don't know, what you need to recruit in and getting the best people. To do the best at their job, and then holistically work together as one team
1: to secure your institution. Yeah, Tom. I mean, you have a really unique background, though. You, you, you have experience as the CRO of major, you know, financial institutions. You have experience as executive protection and physical security with one of the most elite organizations in the world. I mean, you, you're, you know, you're a computer forensic, and I mean, you, I mean, you have experience in all these spaces you know, fraud, cyber, <laughs> there are a lot of guys out there that can say that, right? It's, it's there, there really isn't. So I think for you, I mean, it's like actually perfect when you see someone with your resume come along, like, wow, we can actually do this. Someone really understands, like you said, understands where to put round pegs and round holes and how to do everything. Um, I don't know if that's the norm though. And I think, I, I, don't, I know it's not, right? Obviously. I, I,
4: I agree with you. It's not, George, but I, I identify my leaders and I, I train them up and I've had people who work for me that, you know, started in one area and I give them exposure to other areas and now they're leading their own teams elsewhere. You know, many of the people I've talked about some of them been on the show and I, I think, um, you know, to, 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 you know, I appreciate all the, the praise you just gave me, but I'm not as technical as I used to be. When I was doing forensics solely, I was definitely really good. You know, you know, you and I did forensics together. If you asked me to do forensics today, I'd be very slow at it. And I think that, you know, now my skill set's better at managing. And I think that's just a natural way of uh, adjusting. So uh, I totally agree with you, but I think that we do adjust.
1: All right, folks, we've got to transition to, into a commercial break right here. So if, if, if you're a social media junkie, Don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at TF7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. So I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes, and then we'll be right back with our TF7 cybersecurity expert panel. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, The Voice. Of cybersecurity.
5: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
6: The rules of enterprise security have changed. Your employees work remotely, their devices access corporate data in the cloud. Phishing and other threats are intensifying. Traditional perimeter-based security is no longer enough to keep your enterprise safe. You need a new approach that protects your organization from the outside in. Lookout Post Perimeter Security enables protection at the endpoint and establishes continuous conditional access to data based on risk so you can protect your mobile workforce against phishing and other new world threats. Now you can secure the post perimeter world. Visit Lookout.com forward slash Task Force 7 to learn more today. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider recorded future threat intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash TaskForce 7. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Synet. And the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet. S i n e t.
0: Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at
5: spycloud.com.
0: You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at TaskForce7Radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, Radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host,
1: George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our first ever TF7 cybersecurity expert panel. From Silicon Valley in San Francisco, the Chief Security Officer of Bitco, Tom Pagler, From the Beltway in Washington, D.C., the Chief Information Security Officer of Siena, Andrew Bonillo. And from Sydney, Australia, the Chief Information Security Officer of the National Australian Bank, Mr. David Fairman. So, gentlemen, again, you know, I was reading a great article uh, not too long ago written in cyberscoop.com by Sean Lingas. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he was he was talking to the CEO of Tenable. Amit Yiran, which we, we all know uh, who that is, and we're all friends with Amit. So he was talking to him about, you know, uh, he, they were basically on the sidelines of the RSA conference, and they were talking to them about, you know, uh, I guess his general thoughts on the conference. And Amit said that he thought that a good chunk of the cybersecurity industry was smoke and mirrors. And he thought that companies were, you know, hawking these shiny products that aren't needed to block most intrusions and, and most hacks that happen. And that, quote, unquote, it's an industry that has fed and continues to feed to a large extent off of fear-mongering, which I thought was really interesting. Um, this is something that we talk about all the time. When you go into the board, you don't want to be going in there and scaring everybody all the time to get money. That's not the way to do it. Um, but it's, you know, it's definitely a big topic. So, Andy, does he have a point? How much of the cybersecurity industry right now is just being run by smoke and mirrors?
3: And it's sad to say, George, but I think a decent portion of it, right? I think, um, you know, you can't walk the RSA floor. I mean, we talked about this, you know, weeks ago, right, that people are just building tools and it's the same, you know, buzzwords every year and they don't have a good fundamental understanding of what some of the tech is behind it as they're using the buzzwords. Um, I think, unfortunately, you know, like you said, the, the fear, uncertainty and doubt component or the fear mongering, you know, that's why I think most companies are moved towards a risk-based model. Like, how much is enough? What do I have to spend? What's the threat that I face? And, and, and am I unique? Um, so it's am so fortunate, but I think, you know, there's been a ton of investment in a lot of products. You see, you know, cybersecurity tools, you know, um, you know start to fade off really quickly. Um, and then the only, only the really strong ones survive. And uh, also, unfortunately, I think, you know, trust is a big component. People follow um, security tools based on who's behind the tech. Um, and if you don't have a good understanding of who's really innovating in this space, it's easy to fall into a trap where, you know, you think a tool is really good.
1: Yeah. So there's, a, there is a lot of confusion out there. I mean, you know, Tom, what are your thoughts on this issue? I mean, do you think that everyone's just out for the shiny new product and they, you know, you know, press the button and solve all your problems?
4: I think it's, a, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are new to the space and when they're out there and they are uh, swayed by shiny new, you know, uh, items, and, you know, that's, that's the, the job of people at RSA and new companies is try to sell shiny new stuff. And, you know, that's why personally, um, i I do like Andy does risk-based approach. I, I make sure that I have my fundamentals that I need and I require. And then I, um, you know, I, I, I deal with that and, and I build on that and I, I don't get distracted with the shiny new thing. I don't believe in the snake oil that someone's trying to sell me. I make sure that my fundamentals are there. I take a risk-based approach, and then uh, I selectively go after things that I want to add to it, and I go look at the vendors that offer what I'm looking for.
1: You know, it's interesting. We keep coming back to the risk-based approach, although I don't think a lot of people actually, you know, think about information security from, from a risk perspective. And I don't even think about CISOs as risk executives, I don't think. I really don't think you – know, I guess it's not as prevalent would what I would like it to be. I mean, Dave, is the confusion on the solution set market down in, in, in Australia just as chaotic as it is here in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. We're not immune to the um,
2: overhype and the overmarketing that we see coming out of the cybersecurity industry uh, more broadly. You know, We have our own um, uh, uh, innovative I- environment and uh, ecosystem here, just as much as you. obviously not on the scale that you see coming out of the Valley or, or out of New York or out of the US in- or out of Israel but yeah look we, we do see um you know I think there is a lot of confusion with, with uh, my peers and, and other cyber security specialists you know across Australia I want to echo some of the comments uh, from the from Tom and Andy around you know just basic hygiene you mentioned it before the basic hygiene I don't think that can be overestimated uh, or overstated for me that's always been a discipline that I really uh, pushed in you know my previous organizations because i do think that some of those basics good patching good hygiene locking down usb ports removing those real common attack vectors uh, that we see if we get that discipline right and really be rigorous around that and drive that into the operations that's your biggest defense right there and then i think to, to tom's comments you get that right and then you overlay that with very selected uh point pieces that you want to complement that environment. But, the, you know, what you don't want to do is you don't want to, drive, don't want to think that you need every tool to, to solve every particular problem. And some of the, the conversations I have with vendors are, is that a problem I really want to solve for anyway? As opposed to tell me a problem that you can fix for me? I don't even want to fix that problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, patching. and A lot of the things that you talk about with cyber hygiene are probably, you know, incorporated into your material risk. Uh, list that you constantly talk to your you know, most senior exactly. executives, right? And so it's like, it is a big problem. And, and in fact, you know, as as I kept reading the article, and Amit went on to say that. He actually said that there's been millions of dollars that people are spending and all this hype and all the sexy marketing and the and the, and the names like the artificial intelligence and anomaly, uh, behavioral detection, and, and whatever buzzword you want to use is basically what he's saying. He just said, look, it's a bunch of smoke and mirrors. I don't want to call it useless, he said. But it's on the periphery of, of the issue when people still aren't doing the basics, right? And that's what you're talking about right now. And he actually noted, which I, I'm surprised that I was really just shocked at him to hear about something like this. He noted that there's a great majority of breaches that stem from known vulnerabilities, uh, basic security practices, uh, you know, that rather than, you know, fancy patented technology. And But what he said, what, which was really interesting, was that he pointed to a 2018 speech by David Hogue, who's a, a National Security Agency official, who said that the NSA had not responded to an intrusion that exploited a zero-day vulnerability in over two years. Two years, and they still have not responded to this intrusion. That's, that's amazing to me. I can't, I can't even believe it. I can't believe it. And so to him, you know, uh, me, and I think to everyone else, that was like a holy you-know-what moment, Right. I mean, what is going on here? I mean, what is going on? I and mean, the industry seems to be so vendor driven. And he even said, "Look, it's so vendor driven that people don't even hear. People don't even want to talk about what's the, the the real problems are." But that's the reality that we're facing. And Tom, you know, I think uh, i mean right on the money here. I mean, I think he's got a pretty big point. And you know, to to Dave's point about hygiene, how come people aren't listening? How come people aren't focused on the basics? Well, I think there's a few things here,
4: George. I think uh, one is, as I said there's a big need for security leadership. And I think some people don't have the experience and training, so they rely on vendors too heavily because they actually don't know um, how to build a, the fundamentals. So I think that's an issue. I think there's also an issue that sometimes people inherit um, a program that might have vendors already in there that you're st- stuck with, and then you're trying to piecemeal things together and you know, instead of like holistically just ripping it apart and maybe starting again, or you know, making sure they understand the fundamentals. And another area sometimes is either executives or board members uh, get the their ears bent by someone in the vendor world, and then suddenly they're asking for it specifically. And in, you know, instead of pushing back and saying, hey, this is actually not important on the roadmap right now, it's something I'll evaluate later. A lot of times people are like, well, I'll just get it because it'll make them happy and it's a tool. And, and sometimes it's not the tool you really want. And exactly those kind of things happen. Suddenly you have... Uh, security vulnerability has been around for two years you don't address as you have some you know awesome detection tool thing that's supposed to save the world but it doesn't matter they're already inside
1: right right hey dave do you think that CISOs of organizations are having a problem you know covering the basics and 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 basically implementing good cyber hygiene because line of business executives uh, don't understand, or maybe the CISOs aren't really aligning themselves properly to the line of business. They don't maybe understand that. Hey, look, we shouldn't let you know uncat traffic you know go uh, out of yeah, our proxies. I mean, it should be blocked, right? I mean, do, do you? I mean, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of CSOs do struggle with driving good hygiene across their organization. I think that's a bit. Me- I think it's a bit of a, a measure on how empowered they are actually to drive the security agenda. So for me, it's around. You know, I know I'm in a very fortunate position where my boss and, and the CEO, uh, you know, fully empower me and support me in terms of driving the right behavior. And I've set extremely high, uh, high standards since joining the new organization today and, and then the standards that I've used from my previous organizations in terms of my expectations of what I want my technology peers and how I want my technology peers to be running their technology shops. Uh, so I think that is actually one of the problems. I don't think it's necessarily the CISOs. I think every CISO recognises the value of good hygiene, but I think a lot of organisations struggle to operationalise it and build it as part of their fabric, as part of their DNA. And I think some of the CISOs struggle to drive that behaviour because that's really what we're talking about. It's behaviour of how do you run your technology shop. This is the common basics. And as as far as, I, as, as far as I'm concerned, patching is not actually a security issue patching is actually just good operations management in itself so i think it is a, a true measure of how well you run your technology shop do you run it well or not at all and you can use that as a measure
1: yes you make, you make some really good points here i mean andy you know operations is a lot different than technology right and, and and especially when you're trying to you know implement some of these things i think just like some of the other material risk when you you know the especially when you look at vulnerabilities, it's the security team that detects these vulnerabilities and learns about them, but it's really the operations teams and other tangential teams in the line of business that actually execute on these types of things. And getting everybody on the same page is not always very easy. I think you need those persuasion and influence and negotiation skills. As a CISO, you need to have that, you know, be a professional relationship builder, which I think, you know, a lot of CISOs struggle with too, right? But, I mean, so what are your thoughts and what do you think is the problem?
3: Well, I think there's a lot of people thinking that if they buy a tool, they're good, right? And they're really not focused on maximizing the tool, you know, filling the gap of, you know, why they're buying the tool. I mean, Tom had a great point. I only talk to technologies or capability providers that fill the hole that I need to fill, right? And that's a really mature statement, right? And I think um, you know, people are good at buying tools, but they're not good at focusing on the integration, the optimization, understanding what their gaps are after that, and then finding, you know, the right solutions to fill them. And that's a people process, technology, uh, culture awareness uh, thing, right? It's, a, they all have to be integrated and, and tuned together. Um, and that's just why also I think you see companies take, you know, a maturity journey, right? You have to go from point A to, to point B, B to C, um, and make sure you're covering those gaps, you know, along the way.
4: You know, hey, George, I'd love to jump back in on one more thing that sure. Dave brought up, which I think is great. Is when you think about it, too, is the operation hygiene is so important because, you know, as you said, like good patching is, is fundamental. But honestly, there's a lot of infrastructure changes coming right now that are just inherently more secure and better. And example, look at Google. They, they're doing this whole Kubernetes, and they're offering it for free out there. Anybody can move to it. This allows for containerization. What you basically can do is do a Kubernetes cluster in the cloud you then, uh, that, you own the servers below that. You patch those, keep those good. And then the developers who want to you know build on, on things can build up and spin up their own containers with their own stuff. It doesn't matter if they patch it, what they do with it, because you can blow it away. It's all segmented. At the, at the core level below it, you can control those servers and basically keep them running and spin them up and bring them down as needed. So basically, a good operations team has got fundamental good security around these servers that support an infrastructure that developers can go do what they want to On it actually goes faster. It's better for developers. It's more secure. So that's the kind of stuff that people should be looking at, not some kind of tool that's just going to identify threats.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And you know, this is going to be, I think, a a constant debate. We should bring more attention to this on the show as we move forward. Maybe even do a whole show on it and list, you know, some of the basics that that uh, that team should be doing. You know, whether it be, you know, external storage, email, admin privileges, uncat traffic. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, you know, even asset inventory is huge. You know, how do you protect something you don't even know you have? I mean, data you know. governance,
4: what, what do you have? What, what's the classification? Right. Who has access to it? You know, all that. Yeah. Data discovery, data classification, data governance. Yeah, that'd be great.
1: Huge, yeah. I mean, we should do a whole show on it because I think people would listen. Because this is, you know, this is the this is the basics, right? And you got to have the basics down before you start going out buying a whole bunch of shiny new tools that just overlap each other, create duplicative technologies, and waste money, right? But it was another great topic for a discussion that came up in the uh, in the article uh, with me, and and that is around attribution and the value of attribution. And uh, you know, I, I have a pretty strong opinion about this. He basically said that there was a trend in the industry. That is increasing the number of companies that are actually attributing breaches to hacking groups associated with particular nation states. And uh, for Iran, attribution is much more useful to governments than to network defenders. And I don't necessarily, you know, disagree that it's it, it might be more useful to the government in some in some ways, right? Because of what they do in the nature of their offensive operations and things like that. But I think, you know, he also went on to say that that there was tremendous value in attribution for governments, for the establishment of norms and behavior uh, that can eventually become part of international law, uh, which is another good point, actually, uh, that he told CyberScoop. But for the potential targets of cyber operations, he basically said that there was little value in attribution. Now, um, you know, Dave, I really don't disagree. Uh, I, I mean, I really don't agree with that statement. I kind of I disagree with it. I think that you know, there is a lot of value in attribution in the private sector. I think attribution is very important uh, for network defenders in the private industry, and it's an essential part of an intelligence-led cybersecurity program where you have to know your enemy, you have to know yourself, and you have to create this constant learning environment, right? I think that's essential to your success. What are your thoughts around attribution in the private sector? Yeah,
2: look, I, I can't agree with you more. I think it is important. I think it does come back to being intelligence-led. I think it's very important for you to understand what you who your enemy is how do they operate so that you can try and stay on the front foot of that to your point bringing those learnings back into your operations because if you really want to get into that adaptive state of cyber defense it's about bringing those learnings back in bringing them back into the, the, into the front of the, the sort of threat analysis and understanding how you need to react and respond and, and modify your practices and procedures to to address that so I think understanding that because actually if you understand the threat actor and you can attribute action back to a threat actor clearly there's a lot more uh, good data to be had around how that threat actor evolves themselves and you want to bring that back if they're, if they're a specific threat to you. so that, that's one thing I also do think you know I'm a big believer in any act against a digital asset is you know, against the law, it's a felony offence in, in pretty much every jurisdiction. So understanding who the attacker is, even if it is a nation state, clearly there's operations or, or there's activity, offensive activity, that a, a, a government can do to protect or support private industry for disrupting, for disrupting that nation state actor. And if it's a private threat actor, an organised crime gang, as an example, then I think it's important in terms of understanding who that is because i am a big advocate in terms of how do we not only just disrupt them but how do we put them in jail i think that should be the goal of of every security officer.
1: absolutely i think the days of you know just moving forward with your root cause analysis and you know putting in mitigating controls to mitigate that specific risk as a risk professional are over i really do i really think it is about knowing your adversary right and so you know andy you know, you have experience in both the public and private sectors. And Does your team at Siena think attribution and knowledge of potential adversaries is important?
3: We, we do, right? I think, George, you know, the quest for attribution kind of gives you all the other things you need in between, right? Um, you know, around how they do what they do and the indicators and their motivations and, and all those things. You know, at Siena, we have, um, you know, with, with where we sit in critical infrastructure and who our competitors are, you know, we have a little bit more. Um, you know uh, of a direct benefit if we can know who our adversaries are cuz they are our direct competitors so um you know we we spend a lot of time on that but you know in general right i think you know someone mentioned earlier that it's typically uh you know a, a governments or you know, a private you know government or public sector issue and and some people feel that way right and i think those are the companies that feel that, feel that way aren't the ones that are looking to you know claim to be a victim when they're breached or notified law enforcement right away and there's a lot of um back and forth, you know, in that debate. Um, but for me, you know, really that quest for attribution is really critical. And, you know, the only constraints that I put on my team outside of, you know, budgetary, if, if they were to happen, right. Are the code of conduct and, and criminal law. Right. And I think the adversaries we face, they don't have any boundaries. Right. And so just those, those two boundaries that we have to put on our teams um, is is a bit of a constraint, but, um, you know, it's extremely important for me and my team.
1: Yeah. Tom, I mean, the. Uh... I'm interested in hearing your opinion, as I mentioned before, you have experience in both the public and the private sector. So you, I think, understand the value of understanding your adversary. Uh, Yeah. The value you think it is in the private sector, what's your experience?
4: I absolutely agree with everything we've all said pretty much already. The one thing I will say, though, is I think sometimes um, there's a rush to try to attribute it to a nation state to say it's not my fault. And I think that's unhealthy. So I think it's definitely important to go and understand and say, hey, does this come from either, you know, possibly an nation state actor or some kind of like, you know, fraud something like that and understand that for taking countermeasures. But when you start seeing it like kind of in the news and people try to like get things dismissed and we've seen that you and I, George, have seen that at places that uh, we've worked with and stuff. And I think that that's actually distracting the private sector because when you start saying that it's like, oh, it was a nation state, not my fault, I can't do anything about it. I don't like that because that that basically is like throwing you know, throw up your hands. No matter what, yes, nation states have unlimited resources that are going to come after you really hard. At the end of the day, you're still going to do the best you can to protect what you can and work with you know, your, your country that you're in and the countries that you work in to, to protect the best you can and do the best you can. It's not an excuse. So that's the only area I have issues sometimes with people trying to attribute to almost give an excuse as to why um, they don't have to deal with it. I don't like yeah. that. It's a very, that. It's other than that, absolutely.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good point, Tom, right? Because I think you see that people are, can be very quick to say, hey, well, can we, can we, is this a national security issue? Right, and can we, get, mm. can we bring in you know, a request for technical assistance and start to bring in, you know, the intelligence community and put this thing under a national security umbrella. Right. Um, it's a very interesting conversation. Um, Jordan, I think it'd be fun to have another show just, just on that. We could definitely deep dive here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you
1: know, you put good points on probably a lot of people want to attribute it to nation states because when you talk about nation states and then I have unlimited capability, unlimited, you know, budgets, unlimited skills. Yep. You know, and, and so, it's up. It's like almost a David and Goliath type of thing and to you know, deflect sort of responsibility and, and accountability. So I, I, that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point. But uh, look, guys, we've got to take a quick break uh, to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our TF7 cybersecurity expert panel with an update on the importance of the Five Eyes Alliance and election security around the world. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio,
3: the voice of cybersecurity.
6: Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force 7. and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T
0: account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation many companies think they're protected they believe using a password manager multi-factor authentication behavior-based technology password rotations or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free
5: at spycloud.com.
1: We're back with our first ever TF7 cybersecurity expert panel from Silicon Valley in San Francisco, the chief security officer of BitGo, Thomas Pageler, from the Beltway in Washington, D.C., the chief security officer of Siena, Andrew Benillo, and from Sydney, Australia, the chief information security officer of the National Australian Bank, David Fairman. So, guys, I was, you know, continuing on that same article that we had in the in segment two. Uh, The FireEye CEO, Kevin Mandia, told CyberScoop last year that his company typically gives the U.S. and its five allies a heads up about threat intelligence reports that it plans to publish. And some cybersecurity professionals took issue to that. They were saying, hey, look, you know, we don't like that that whole method that you're using with the five eyes. They were basically arguing for a country agnostic approach to disclosing hacking threats. So, you know, when asked to weigh in on the issue, uh, Amit basically said that the decision to go public with cyber threats is not always cut and dry, right? Internet users around the world deserve to be protected, he said, but not all threats are created equal, and not all threats warrant disclosure. And, he, you know, and I quote him now, he says, if we stumble across an operation, we are, moral, are we morally obligated to report it or go public with it? And that's a great question. You know, that's a great question. Amit's got a lot of experience. He's been doing this for 20 years. He's, in, you know, been executive of Semantic RSA Security. He's been over at the Department of Homeland Security. The guy's, you know, a very well-regarded um, uh, cybersecurity executive. And that's why we're, that's why we're using uh, some of his conversation as topics uh, for discussion today. But I think, you know, and, and lastly, he said, I think it has to be a case-by-case decision. Now, guys, I, I really agree with that. I don't think we should just tell everybody everything at all times. It's, you can't have that sort of, you know, hands down, you know, draw the, um, the line in the sand you know, uh, you know, black or white area. Right. So Tom, are you think we're obligated to tell everyone everything we know about our intelligence when we learn it? Or should we, you know, does, does uh, really Kevin have a point about, you know, the way he does it. The way he it about? I, it? I don't
4: think we're obligated to tell everybody, but I do think exactly the case by case, I think, um, I don't think it's wrong to want to alert the government that you operate in uh, mostly like primarily first, because That critical infrastructure, you probably rely on yourself for your business. And I also don't think it's wrong sometimes to let certain private industry know on a scaled basis. And what I mean by that is the ones that are more critical, as in maybe energy grids, things like that. And then you start thinking about like Amazon, like AWS, you know, being ahead of things can be good because so many people rely on them or Google or, you know, some of these uh, bigger bigger entities. And, you know, I'm obviously a small company right now, but I rely on some of these bigger ones. So them getting in a little bit earlier before it's just let out there and then everybody scrambling and hoping that, you know, fraudsters who might not have known about it before suddenly have the information. Now it's a race. It's a race to get, you know, patched and done and figured out. So I, I actually personally think, um, I absolutely agree with it. And it's, it's good case by case and trying to figure out the best way to cause the least amount of impact, uh, to everybody as you, as you let this stuff out.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly the more people that you can help, the better. But I think, you know, Andy, it's it's all it's all about trust and information sharing, isn't it? I mean, what are your thoughts on the information sharing outside of the Five Eyes network?
3: I mean, it really is all about trust, and I think you know the line of trust will start to get blurred on at a you know government level as you know nation states are embedding you know their operatives more deeply into uh, the boards of companies or leadership of companies that they want to have more control or visibility into. Right. And, uh, so I think we're going to have to take a hard look at who are we sharing with and why I think at a tactical level, you know, certainly, you know, the trust is a big, big component because, you know, look, I mean, folks were sharing information in some instances that they, you know, maybe don't have authority to share, um, authority to obtain depending on who they are and what they're doing. Um, You know, and then sometimes you just have the trust groups, right? They just want to, you know, there's rules around and govern how uh, we police, you know, the the sharing of that information. But from a government to government, you know, yeah, I mean, I think um, outside the five eyes, it's, you know, it's a government coalition, you know, for for wartime, right? That's what it was stood up for. So um, you got to be very thoughtful about what we're sharing and why. And, you know, and unfortunately, you know, in the U.S., um, the, the battlefield is not owned by the government. Right. It's the, it's the you know, internet infrastructure that, that exists around the world, and we've got to be very very mindful of who we're sharing it with and, and why.
1: Yeah, I mean, this question comes in a time when we're actually questioning the Five Eyes Alliance in terms of, you know, some, of uh, some of the members using Huawei and some of their infrastructure and how trustworthy is that. So it's not that we don't trust each other in the Five Eyes Alliance. It's, it's more of, do we now even trust the infrastructure that each uh, member country is using Uh, to actually process this intelligence. But, Dave, this is a great question for you because uh, Australia is part of the Five Eyes, obviously, with the United States. Uh, What do you think? Is it time to think about things a little differently when it comes to cybersecurity intelligence and information sharing?
2: Yeah, look, uh, I think, you know, both Tom and Andy made some great points. I think, for me, I take a little bit of a selfish look at it. it, You know, and it comes back to the point around the Five Eyes Alliance was you know, the five key nations coming together to share intelligence in time of of warfare. Surely there needs to be some advantage around that alliance in itself, right? And that, you know, our countries have strong military and um, just sort of uh, patriotic alliances that, we, that we've that we held now for many, many years. So I, I do still see value in that. And I think there has to be some sort of advantage around that. But I think it's more it's so to, I think once that information is shared, within those uh, government vicinities, and it comes back to that that government deciding who it wants to share with. So coming back to one of the points that were made area, what's the value of sharing that? Have we had the right to be able to identify that? And who else should we share that with and for why? So I think there is, I think there's still val- uh, validity there. Um, but I think, you know, should we be looking more broadly? I think it really comes back to the point of, of what's the value of sharing that? and also, not only the value of sharing that, but do we compromise anything by sharing that? So is there, if I think about, uh, you know, the, the, the spy environment, if you like, you know, do we compromise any potential threat, uh, um, sort of threat analysts that we have out in the field or, or operations that we have in the field, not just from a military operations, but also from a cyber warfare perspective? Will we compromise anything by sharing that? More broadly, I think that's something that's really important because that is part of your strategic advantage and national security capability. And you need to think about how you share that and who you share that with. So I think that, that that's a very relevant um, point that we need to consider prior to thinking about anything outside more broadly than that. But before you would share with the Five Eyes, you'd be thinking that yourself anyway. So I think there's sorts of the questions that need to be asked versus blanket statements on who you sh- should and shouldn't share with.
1: So I want to switch gears here for the last topic of this episode and talk a little bit about uh, election security again. And this is a theme that we're going to be pounding away right up into the 2020 election because it's imperative that we get it right. And it's imperative that we bring as much attention to it as we possibly can. And I was just looking at a recent article written on March 11th in the Washington Post by Joseph Marks talking about election security in Australia. And uh, since we have you on the show, Dave, I thought it would be, uh, a great question to ask while we had you. So it's been more than two years after the United States government had uh, its issues uh, with a foreign government hack of one of its main political parties, right? And so Australia seems to be taking note of how we responded to it here in the US and how other countries have responded to their uh, political intrusions and trying to uh, learn off of that, which is a very smart thing to do, right? So. Australian officials are trying to be as transparent as possible about a major breach of the nation's parliament and its three main political parties just three months before an election, which is pretty big. That's a really big deal. So one of the goals that they have is that citizens won't be blindsided by a 2016-style information dump aimed at undermining a political party or the political process in total, right, that they have there. And so they're really trying to get on top of this, and there's been a lot of publicity about it, uh, even here in the United States, because we had some of the similar problems. So, Dave, in your opinion, how seriously are people taking election security in Australia? And do you feel comfortable that uh, the, the, the proper security is in place?
2: Look, I think the Australian government are taking it extremely seriously. I was actually in Canberra, only uh, less than two weeks ago, and we were talking about matters of national security, and and the recent report around the breach or the compromise of the three major political parties in Australia came up in in, in discussion. So it is a uh, an issue that is taken extremely seriously. I think the Australian government uh, are taking uh, making all moves and all measures that they can to ensure that you know the right measures are taken to protect the sanctity and the integrity. Of the Australian voting system. You know, we are coming up to a, a new election, new government a federal election, where we will be voting for a new power government at the federal level, and therefore a new prime minister, and that is only months away. So clearly a lot of focus on that within the government at the moment. Uh, with the breach that was recently announced, I think that was back in February or March, I think it was February, they still haven't, coming back to our previous conversation around attribution, they have, there hasn't been any clear indicators as to who the perpetrator was. Uh, however, there's been speculated, it has been speculated through non-verified sources that it was, you know, China. And I think if you think about the, the differences between what we saw in the U.S. a couple of years ago uh, with Russia and, and releasing information in a very timed and specific. Manner. if you look at uh, china china has never really done that in its history it's sort of stolen it sort of compromised the, the data and kept that very close to its chest for, for other purposes i think the biggest threat here is not just the it's not just that i think the biggest threat is is really what we saw back in 2006 uh, 2016 with regards to fake news and misinformation right and the australian government have launched a information warfare capability in the Australian Defence Force, which is specific and and, and focused on um, disrupting and taking down misinformation and and fake news or or looking to identify where uh, campaigners are trying to address and and, and skew and influence specific elements of society. So there is active um, sort of activity on that and, and countermeasures being taken for that within the Australian government. So, yeah, look, it, it's definitely taken seriously. I think the Australian people uh, are aware of it. I'm not sure if they necessarily think about it as seriously as you know, the government or, or security professionals, but I think there's definitely awareness, out of, uh, uh, awareness there uh, within Australia, definitely. Tom,
1: any thoughts?
4: I think Dave nailed it all. And I mean, you know what we carried over from before. I think any threat to elections, you know, is a threat to democracy. So it's something that you know all of our governments need to really uh, take serious and, and put measures in place. So you know, I think uh, absolutely well well said, Dave.
1: And Andy, you know how much do you think that the uh, these foreign governments are really achieving their purpose by you know getting us to fight against each other, right? You know, they hack one political party, and then the other one. Uh, um, is basically at a, a disadvantage because the uh, the party that was hacked is saying, "Oh, well, you know, they're <laughs> either they're political operatives and an extension of that party, or now you have an advantage over me." And then the, you know they're trying to uh, take the election and you know and basically throw it out all out of uh, out of whack and the, le- the legitimacy of some of these elections to actually just be in question. We just talked about Israel, Israel not too long ago. We talked about uh, Switzerland. Uh, we're talking about Australia you know in the United States, this is a big deal. This is happening it seems to uh, m- most of the free world is is having this problem right now, and i don't see it going away anytime soon
3: no it won't and I also think it it does highlight the importance of you know the five eye type alliances imagine if we couldn't have shared you know information with you know Australia right leading up to their election on things that we had learned um, and now vice versa things that they're experiencing that we would want to but Um, you know, the distrust that it puts into, I think what it does is it really just continues to maybe polarize, at least here in the U S um, parties, right. And and typically, you know, they're not so right. So left, I think that we're just becoming more polarized. Um, and to some extent, I think this has, has something to do with it.
1: So guys, I know that, you know, you guys are all over the place right now, all over the world, Tom, you're traveling. I think you're in Chicago. Uh, uh, today, even though um, you know, I, I, we always announce that you're from. Obviously, if you're from San, San Francisco, that's where you're headquartered out of. But I think yep. you're moving around today. And, and, and look, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us, Dave. Thanks so much for coming on. Happy to be here. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, All right, guys, it's a, it's time to uh, roll this up. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up to date cybersecurity breaking news. At www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out
3: there.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio.